We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE. People are expecting. People are expecting quite a bit. This is your time. You want to win. You got to be like this. There are no shortcuts in life. You'll get better because you make each other better. The inches we need are everywhere around us. I know plenty of people that are capable. I know fewer people that are willing. You have to believe it to do it. Now, what are you going to do? Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Sideline Sessions on the Beat Podcast Network. I'm so pleased to have you here with us. We're really excited to continue this season, this debut season of our series here, and uh, have another great conversation today. I am really pleased to be joined by Samantha Arsenault Livingstone. She is an Olympic gold medalist, a high-performance consultant, speaker, and mental health activist. She was also co-captain. 2005 uh, national champion Georgia Bulldogs swimming and diving team. Samantha spent time as a high school science teacher and swim coach. And in 2016, she founded Livingstone High Performance and the Whole Athlete Initiative in response to the mental health crisis impacting young people across the globe. Uh, Samantha, welcome to the show. Oh, so grateful to to be here with you today. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So I'd love to to start with your time as an athlete and then go from there. But of course, you know, as uh, each of us, no matter if we're first starting probably at, at age five or six or uh, in the college or the Olympics, right, we start to have some perspective or understanding of what coaches do, what they are, how they're impacting us and making an impression. So I'd be interested in hearing from your experience as an athlete, what was your experience of coaching? What coaches made an impression on you? And, you know, how did that kind of support you through your swim career? Yeah, so swimming. So I have to say that I started, my first love was soccer, actually. And that was my, the sport that I started the earliest and found my way to the swimming pool because of my older brother who was swimming because it was way easier to swim than be hot on the sidelines. Right. So my first experience with coaches were like parents of my friends right playing on the town soccer team and that they were like we met business when we went to practice there was just this like shifting of gears of okay we're here we're together we're going to work hard and I'm so fortunate that those early memories from when I joined swimming at nine years old and when I started to play soccer probably around like five or six that those Mm -hmm. within those two arenas that had really positive coaching experiences met with like warmth and that balance so it was like a blend of warmth and also like we're going to get this done we're going to be focused mm-hmm. like let's get back on track and it was process focused I did not have the language at the time when I was younger but looking back that that was the culture kind of in the stage by the time that I got to the age that or a lot of athletes I think it's younger now but that 12 13 14 year mark where you're having to kind of make decisions about where to spend your time so I mm-hmm was playing club soccer at that time and then swimming was had made it made my way to a national stage at 12 13 years old so I had to kind of make a decision and so I stepped away from the sport of soccer and that's when my coaching experience was pretty rough actually in swimming and I don't know how much detail we want to get into here but it turned into what when I said no to soccer and yes to swimming I transitioned out of a YMCA program into a club experience Mm-hmm. and the coaches were abusive and yeah. I didn't have the language again at the time and so there was this ex- my experience as an athlete was 
I have this deep, compelling desire to grow and to see how far I can go in sport. Like that was always in me. And I thought first it was going to be gymnastics, then it was going to be soccer and then swimming. And I felt this in, incredible uh, frustration and resistance and inner conflict because the people that were supposed to help me get there. Now, my parents knew nothing about swimming, right? Mm -hmm. They were, my dad played football and my mom really wasn't encouraged to play sports. She played a little field hockey. I was feeling this, like, these are the people that are supposed to help me get to my dream. And I'm getting, like, I'm on tracks, if you will, right? Making progress in the sport. But when I go, my body was lighting up with messages of like, I'm on, I'm unsafe and uncomfortable. And so I started to retreat and actually went through a pretty dark time until my mom noticed that something was going on. My love of swimming had died. Like it just, I no longer wanted to be there. I didn't want to swim anymore. And she noticed and asked, you know, do you want to swim? And my answer was no. And then she said, well, what if we change teams? She didn't know what was going on, but would, would this matter? And that's where I changed organizations and club teams. And you talk about the role of a coach and that experience. That was the coach that ended up helping me get to the top of the Olympic podium at 18. And his presence created the just this absolute like container for hard work where it was pure joy and fun. It was hard. And also right. like working hard was fun. And it was, again, process focused kind of back to my roots around this. This is, this is all about the journey. And yes, it's important to set these goals, but like, here's how we do it. And the music blaring at practice and just the connection through working hard. And he became in, in ways, you know, as like a really powerful guiding force, of like as I was becoming, right? So at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And so then when I went off to college, my experience there with coaches, that was very different actually when I, because I came off of the Olympics and then started my college career and I felt frustrated. I landed at Michigan first and I felt frustrated by that, that I didn't have what I had before that connection. I was just kind of like one of many and that dynamic and relationship, what I realized was how important it was to me that I felt heard and seen. And so long story short there, I ended up having shoulder surgery, red shirting, and went through a kind of a rough patch post-Olympics. And I moved toward supports and healed and came out of that and ended up transferring to the University of Georgia, where I had, again, like coaches who created an environment that was conducive to really high performance and also honoring us as human beings. And so like the language around, I don't know if you've heard the expression in, ed in the education world, especially of like, instead of being the temperature, like you're the thermostat, right? Setting right. the tone and creating a container. And it's not about trying to control, but it was more about empowering. And so that like kind of coaches who had the greatest impact in a positive way along the way were those that stood alongside of me and mirrored back my strengths, right? And held steady when I felt wobbly and created that container of deep respect for the humans that were in front of them. And that's what was that in my experience at Georgia, there wasn't just one coach, it was an entire staff and then the support staff around them that really shared those values. So I feel really blessed. I feel very blessed that I had so many incredible coaches, you know, and then I was able to experience the not so incredible experiences, which helped me today to really be able to relate and pay forward what I've learned. Yeah, the, the, that experience. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, MyFlex Learning. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it totally worth exploring. There's more time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students, and the increased engagement that comes along with it, dedicated time for intervention. And overall, as school leaders, it provides you and your faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in. It can hold you back from ensuring students make good use of their time. That's why I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with the seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. If you want to see for yourself, visit myflexlearning.com forward slash BE 
to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE. You'll learn all about MyFlex Learning, what it can do for your school, and you'll receive a $500 off offer for your first year. Check it out. And throughout each of those pieces and then in reflecting back on it as well and, and in getting into coaching yourself, did you develop any way of being able to articulate to others and other coaches the distinction and the, between appropriate tough coaching particularly in an endurance sport where there's a certain amount i'm sure there's a a certain percentage whatever it is and i'm sure you have a perspective Mm -hmm. on this as far as that just has to be intrinsic in that athlete to say well i'm I'm just going to really push myself but also the role of the coach in getting the best out of you versus you know when it's on the other side of the line and it's inappropriate and abusive and and especially understanding that in you know most probably all sports but particularly again in like endurance sports right there are times when you need that tough coaching and, and but it's not but we also want to be uh, mindful of not valorizing it in mm-hmm. this way that over the years uh, one of our other guests you know earlier this season was a basketball player named Charlie Miller who played mm-hmm. at Indiana University for Bobby Knight, who is probably the most famous known for that era of valorizing those tough coaches that now we would say, well, there's a lot of stuff there that I'm not so sure about, right? But how do you kind of, if you're maybe coaching another coach, right? I love, you went right here. Like this is the space I feel like for where there's room for so much growth because it's not either or. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we peel back the layers and we get to the root and the foundation and we can stand, like build a strong foundation, then, then we can get into that space where we can push. So one of the pieces of the foundation has to be that our language cannot be shaming So we, that separation of the person from their behavior, like is such a core fundamental concept. So who I am is not what I do. So I am in the parenting space, Dr. Becky, I don't know if you know who she is, like a influencer online and I don't know if you follow her work. It's really good. It's good stuff. (laughs) She talks about two fists and I've adopted that and taken her, like her visual, because it's something that I've talked about and say like, okay, like you're left fist if this is who you are your right fist like so as a coach or and so this applies for the athletes that we're working with as well as the coaches themselves like we're going to show up above the line and be able to perform and have these moments where we raise that right fist right it's above the line and then we're going to have moments where we fall short and we fall below the line and the right fist can go up and down and all around because we're human striving so we're going to have these experiences and the leftist remains steady and constant because that's our worth as a human being and that we're enough, period, regardless. So that enoughness is not embracing that and getting in the, into this messy space with coaches is like, okay, what we're not saying is like you're enough and that entitles you to a spot on the roster. We're saying that you're enough as a human being. You're worthy of love and right. respect, period. Now whether or not your performances are at the level where they can make a scoring roster, let's say that's another thing, but that's your behavior. And that's, and that it just opens up when you can build that foundational piece and understand that concept and continue to come back to it. You move away from language, right. uh, That's shaming around attacking a person or making sweeping generalizations and move into a more nuanced ability to develop feedback. That's actually behavior specific which Mm -hmm. can be corrected and changed, right? So that piece, I would say, is part of it. And then the other is in in introducing the concept that both things can be, two things can be true at once, which is something our brain doesn't like, right? We're uncomfortable with that, but two things can be true at once. And so when we're embracing that space of I care about you and also can hold you to these high expectations, right? Both things can be true at one time. You know, I care about you as a human being, and right? And also that behavior is not okay. So it's not, it's getting in and creating space for those nuanced conversations. And honestly, meeting coaches, I have yet to meet a coach, honestly. And I've worked with a lot of them. 
that it doesn't care about the people they work with. Like the amount of time I'm married to a coach as well, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a family sacrifice. Like it takes an enormous amount of time and energy. And when we can also get clear about that and acknowledge and mirror that back, like you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't care about the development of young people that are in front of you. Okay, so how are we gonna do that? And then the third piece of that foundational block is that connecting is helping them to see the actual literature around, okay, when we try to control and have power over, like, this is the cost of this, we become less independent, less gritty, right? All of the things that we know versus this ability to empower and help people understand how to regulate their inner world, that that's actually not going to make us washed up and weak. So it's like speaking directly into the fears, really, of if I let go of control, then what's going to happen? They're all going to fall apart. So I think that naturally, you might have some that realize like this sport's not for me. I'm not actually willing to do these things. But then isn't the team better off for that? And that person better off for that, right? When you shake it all out. So I think, yeah, so those three kind of core pieces set the stage for rich conversation. Then you get into the scenarios of every day around like, what is that? Like, how do we navigate that space of having high expectations, bringing intensity and passion and wanting and striving for excellence while also honoring the humans that are in front of us. Yeah. yeah. These are such a, I, I could talk, I could spend all of our time right here. <laughs> well, what, <laughs> so, and I, I know there were certain inflection points during your career with athletics, but what was the point in which you got interested in coaching yourself and thinking mm. about that? It was something that you may actually want to do. Yeah. I, so I actually never saw this coming. Yeah. I, well, I say that although, and I fell in love with teaching. So you could, I mean, teaching and coaching, like how I see sport is a vehicle. It's a vehicle that allows us to connect and tap into that greatness and magic inside of us. Mm-hmm. So while I may have been my vehicle before doing this work formally was like talking about plant cells and animal cells in biology class like it was still about helping the young people in front of me connect with that magic inside of them with this constant the construct of like the knowledge and learning is a power right and it is empowering so so I think I've always that has always interested me Mm -hmm. there was a moment where I originally, so when I came off of the Olympics, won my gold medal, came into that, I would say I like kind of fell into the darkness when I arrived at Michigan and was feeling that disconnect with the coach that I referenced and the team and just was going through a rough spot in a huge part because I needed shoulder surgery and I did not want to deal with that reality. So when I was getting help, I also referenced that one of the assignments was to go out to a school and mentor. And we were thrust the part of the mentorship is you're put into a classroom and that is when I was like okay I'm not going to be pre-med anymore I need to switch to teaching because I felt called to do it so I would say that experience of witnessing those like unlocks or aha moments or that like young person that just sits up a little taller knowing Mm -hmm. that you see them and that you hear them and that you care about them and they just learn something like those that lit me up and so I shifted my major to education And when I started teaching, I also started coaching swimming. And so then it's just been this, you know, I'm no longer in a traditional classroom, but I still like, I feel like I take my classroom with me. So like what I'm teaching looks different on the outside and the way that I'm teaching, but as a coach and a high performance consultant and coach, mindfulness coach, I wear whatever title, it's really about connecting and helping the human in front of me grow, you know? So, yeah. So I think it was kind of a combination, but I definitely didn't think that I would be in this space as a mental health activist and coach in this way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, this is certainly going to be an overgeneralization because I'm just kind of making it up on the spot based on my own experience and what I'm thinking about during this conversation. But I was thinking about the reasons why people become inspired to get involved with coaching and versus even those who become inspired to to become teachers right? mm-hmm. as you were just talking about and of course there's a lot of overlaps and mm-hmm. commonalities and you know I, on one of our other episodes when I asked how our guest would 
define coaching, he said that he defined it as teaching, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, I so many times I talk to teachers and what kind of how they get involved in it. Like most of those stories start with some teacher that they had that yes. that inspired them and that they wanted to be like. And there's also those who you know they kind of fits in the two buckets. It's those who had a wonderful schooling experience and had some great teachers that inspired them and they want to give that to others. There are also those who didn't have that wonderful of a school experience Mm -hmm. and want to give others the opposite. But in any case, even thinking about the similarity to coaching, I, I don't, I hear much more about the interest in the sport itself and in the young athletes and in wanting to help Mm -hmm. them learn comes up much more frequently than that. I wanted to specifically be like some other coach, right? I mean, I might, you may have learned a lot from other coaches, whether as an athlete or just throughout our coaching careers, we seek out guidance and mentorship, but it's interesting that almost, and again, like I'm just totally overgeneralizing. And so listeners, Mm -hmm. you can hold me accountable for that, but I'm going to make it messy for you. When you were just reflecting back, who came up for me was my, the mentor, Greg Harden is is his name, who was at Michigan, who was the man who I met with every week for two years while I healed through my shoulder surgery, a depression, eating disorder, and moved into recovery from that. And that he is who assigned the mentorship to go to schools, right? He introduced me to mindfulness. Didn't, he didn't say the name of it at the time. It was Mm -hmm. not as commonly talked about, especially not in sport. It's still tough to bring that into sport even though we know, yeah, that's another tangent that could go on. So he introduced me to these concepts and he empowered me and the language he would use is I want to help you become the world's greatest expert on yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that is, he is who like, if, so in this kind of journey to where I am today, I would say that experience, knowing his impact and knowing that not everyone is as fortunate as I was to be able to have somebody like a Greg in their life mm-hmm. when they needed it most. And so that is, yeah. So there's, a, that's many teachers inspired me. Right. He was the one that I would say like, this is, I want to, yeah, stand in that space and help people yeah. like he helps people. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if I were to categorize the worst coaches I ever had, it would, it would be the ones who felt that they were duty bound to perpetuate the lineage of the terrible coaches that came before them and not because they necessarily even thought that the way they were coached was so great but because there was some like (laughs) masculine uh, value placed around being a difficult person right Um, it's it's like that model is like control mm -hmm. and also I would say that as an educator you I know there's alternative paths to education but a huge part of what that I got my master's in education as well. I was like, what, why are you doing this? Why do you want to do this? Why do you think this works? Like there was so much reflection and preparation for actually, how do we learn? And that unfortunately in this country, in the U S is not other countries have programming, but we're just not there when it comes to helping coaches with coach education and understanding in the same ways that we do right with that on-ramp and teaching. And so there, I don't know that unless, it's kind of forced by their governing bodies. And at that point, like not so much down Mm -hmm. at the lower levels, like that there are strategies and skills. Like side note, my daughter, all four of my girls play ice hockey and my littlest who's seven, her coach is incredible. And he's trying to work through openly like best ways to manage poor behavior. And that model of like, do what's done, what was done to me is what we all we know till we know better, right? Unless Mm -hmm. we've done work on the side to understand how kids learn and respond to things versus like a a teacher comes in with that experience of of at least being mentored in that way. So I think that we just stay on autopilot, exactly what you're saying in that model. And so to break away from it, if we go to the brain, like, wait, you're going to tell me, you're going to cause me to challenge my beliefs. Like that's uncomfortable, right? Like that space of cognitive dissonance. People don't want to be in that space. So they're that that's the place of helping to that where that foundation, right, is built, but putting out there like connecting with you care about the development. Like, why are you even coaching? Why are you coaching? Right. And then okay, here's some ways that we can do this. And I do think that most there are still going to be some that push in the extreme direction of 
getting behind and supporting that way of coaching, of controlling and that old school model. Yeah, no, it is totally what you're saying. And I don't know that there's a net to catch the coaches as they enter Mm-hmm. the field with education in that way besides modules online that you can click through right and it, it's hard to transition i imagine and, and again i said refer to that specifically being coaches who were then replicating the behavior of the coaches they had mm-hmm. that what that means right by definition is that they were athletes in the sport that they're coaching which that is a challenging transition if you're used to playing the sport throughout years and then you go to coach you no longer have a direct impact on the results in the field you oh you're right you make a difference but you're not so that's what that control impulse versus when we have coaches who didn't play the sport or didn't play the sport at a certain level who they could be challenged in other ways but they may not have the same impulse toward control because their experience is different mm-hmm. and it's just different ways of dealing with mm-hmm. different challenges and and coming to the understanding at a certain point that you still have a job to do but there's certain things that are now just out of not your okay. control yeah oh um, no, yeah i'm like not okay <laughs> and out of your control yeah i'm with you <laughs> yeah. yeah um yes, my... control oh my gosh so, you know, when you were coaching swimming, for example, and of course you were as the, you achieved at the highest level as a swimmer yourself, were there challenges that came along oh with gosh, yes. coaching a sport that you were so successful in? Totally. Yeah. This is making me laugh. And I apologize to those that I coached that first year. Cause that, even though I, so I'd come from my high school classroom and where I was a rookie, acknowledging that I'm a rookie mm-hmm. learning, right? And and then it's stepping into a pool in that new role. And I was mm-hmm. just like, so an example was like explaining butterfly and so much for me about swimming was feel. And so I'm like right. trying to explain to this athlete, like where their body position is and where to press. And like, it was just not registering. And like, I held my composure, but inside going like, uh, just like can't you just feel it like you? Right, so there was right. frustration there because I didn't have the language to communicate effectively as a coach and that was a t- really challenging shift of like I can be an expert at this thing myself but can I actually teach this thing two different things right right can I actually communicate and scaffold and so it was humbling because I had to then turn toward age group coaches who I don't even know that they ever swam in college, right? Mm-hmm. The, but they and they were incredible communicators. They made swimming fun. They were able to teach the nuanced pieces that set the athletes up for success instead of just kind of coming at. So I had a lot to learn. Yeah. So that was yes, I absolutely can resonate with that space of not understanding what they didn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sort of an, an in the weeds swimming question before we <laughs> go broader, but. Are there particular ways of determining at a certain age or as as kids are growing up and participating in different sports, whether or not swimming will become the sport where they may excel the most? Or mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there's, you know, common physical characteristics of swimmers, right? And mm-hmm. Height and other things. And But I'm curious because for me, for example, like I shared before we start recording, right, that I'm six five but i didn't know until much later that would have been an advantage in swimming (laughs) (laughs) but at the time you think it's an advantage in basketball but only up to a certain point and then it's like it's not anymore so it would be like oh i maybe i should have you know stuck with swimming a little longer but are there any things like that you know and i'm sure listeners may have kids of various ages doing different sports and might be trying to figure out okay you know what what should we try right that's such an interesting question. I, and I don't know, like if there's actual data out there that says like, hey, these are the things. I would say that as, and I don't know even how to like quantify or even like qualitatively explain to you what it looks like. You can just see people move through the water mm-hmm. and there's a level of efficiency. So in like, I'm like, well, one of my daughters is an example I'm like, are you sure you don't want to try swimming? Because like you, yeah. she, she just never before, t- I've taught her like just basic strokes, but just the way, like though, even compared to the other girls. So like just the way that someone can, that mo- moves through the water, 
how kinesthetically aware they are. So like when you're talking swimming, your smallest tweaks is a matter of tenths of seconds, which adds up, right? It's a lot in the sport. So the ability to be able to have the kinesthetic awareness to know like, okay, if the coach is explaining this to me, can I actually implement that and feel that in my body? And then the design, like, do they love it? I mean, that that's right. like, the, I think the biggest, yeah. like, does it bring them joy? And of course, inside the joy, there's, we, that's another place we can experience two things. Like we can experience, it could be hard work. And also like, is there space for joy and play there? And then I would say from that, th- they're being able to continue to have that. Like I saw too many super fast kids at young ages that I was, that were my peers when I entered and then they burned out because they just mm-hmm. swimming is like a, unfortunately still considered like a year round sport, right. Versus the seasonal and having an right. actual off season. So, yeah. So I would say, my, I think my like first response to that would be kind of watching them swim and move through the water yeah. and then maybe, right. But the other pieces have to be there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So shifting gears uh, to your current work, which is, you know, focused in a variety of areas. Tell us about the whole athlete initiative and what was your motivation behind starting that? Yeah. Thanks for asking. So that there are different layers and levels of it, right? So from an organizational standpoint, looking at like the whole purpose is to provide pillars of support that elevate well-being. So when we talk about mental well-being and emotional well-being. And also, so not either or, but and also increase access to high performance, right? So elevate performance. That's that space I was talking about when we build that foundation. So huge. So that work can be done from an organizational level and looking at structures and systems in place all the way down to the individual level of like, what, like, how can I become the world's greatest expert on me? How do I navigate my inner world? So the catalyst for the whole athlete initiative, I originally, so I was teaching, as I mentioned, and then my, we, our world moved and then came twins is what I like to say that I chose to stay home from the classroom because paying for daycare would have been like, I would have right. been paying to go to work. Right. Oh my goodness. But then one of my twins needed open heart surgery. And so that was like this kind of rock bottom moment for me of like really deeply rumbling with like, whoa, like what do I want to do in this world? And like, how do I first function and survive? And she's thriving now. We're very grateful for that. But that was a kind of rough road back to my feet and on that journey of healing I was reflecting back on like memories were coming up from my experience of I had never so as a mother now 13 years removed from the Olympics never talked about the abusive coaching that I had and Mm -hmm. experienced as a club swimmer never talked about the moment on the podium where I was it was this duality of experiencing incredible like I was humbled and proud and exhausted and so grateful for the opportunity to represent our country and win a gold medal. Like there was such a euphoric high. And also it was coupled with this like emptiness of, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it would, this is all it would be. And Mm -hmm. in a vicious inner critic that was so unkind about all the things, all the ways I was falling short, even though I won a gold medal. Like, so there was this real like deep rumbling that Honestly, for 16 years, I was like, shove it down. I literally had all my Olympic stuff boxed up, never talked about it. I never introduced myself in that way. I was just like, this is a different part of me, like a different person. Yeah. And it was through that experience of navigating open heart surgery, that healing journey, and then the collision of the healing journey with watching the Rio Olympic Games. And I don't know if you're, if you watch the Olympics, Mm -hmm. but the Mm -hmm. swimmers were making some pretty poor decisions, got in trouble with the law. Like it was this whole ordeal. And I'm simultaneously in therapy rumbling, like, can we, what you're talking about, can you have intense coaching that's not abusive? Can you be great and also be healthy? So like I was personally reflecting and sifting through like literature and researchers work to find the answers. And while the Rio Olympics were going on and I'm in the midst of this kind of like swirl, my daughter's were old enough to get that I was an Olympian and they're like, where, wh- like, where's all your stuff. So we right. unboxed the boxes and as they were playing and dressing up with metal and like literally like my, my suits from, and if you've ever competed in swimming, they're really tight. And my, my, I forget how old she was. So she's four years old, four-year-old daughter puts my suit on that I wore at 18. She's like, this is tight. <laughs> you have no idea. 
Anyway, so I found inside those boxes journals that captured the inner world of my 18-year-old self. And I was staring at my young girl. So I had four daughters at that time. One was an infant. Three were playing with all the stuff. And I was just going like the joy on their faces. Like, how does one go from this to this? Like the way that I was talking about myself and I saw how sick I was. And so it was literally in that moment that I'm like, okay, I originally had no plans to take my entrepreneurial work. I was doing wellness coaching and empowering women and all like no, no desire to take it into the sporting world Mm -hmm. until I read that and went, oh my gosh, I had no idea how sick I was. I had no idea. And I need to do something because now I know I had this body of work that I had been compiling on my own from just based on my own curiosity that I knew I felt called similar to teaching. I felt called like this, I need to pay this forward because I really believe at their core, coaches are good humans who are doing the best that they can with the resources they have. And they just don't know better yet, right? They don't know how to actually have high expectations, high standards, high performance, and also treat athletes in front of them well. So yeah, so here I am. (laughs) So there's lots of layers. It is work that is challenging and humbling and exhausting and fulfilling and it's all of it right so yeah yeah Yeah, and i and even in that response and that explanation Mm. i think it speaks to something that is it's clearly present in the work that you're doing with a whole athlete and it must be you know just a value of the way you're going about it but that is uncommon and it's the the presence of vulnerability in coaching right yes. certainly it contrasts with what we talked about earlier that mm-hmm. kind of old school approach that would never show quote-unquote weakness type of thing it also relates to i think sometimes the unintentional reality of why in certain cases the athlete who might have been the best in the of, of the best in their sport has some trouble mm-hmm. coaching it because they are have, just have a difficult time relating to I mean, mm-hmm. and you talked about this a little bit and i think about it in team sports as well right why you kind of rarely see that hall of fame player become the most successful coach because there's just a certain point where it becomes difficult to relate to somebody who just doesn't have the ability that you had mm-hmm. and it's not that you're trying to kind of be invulnerable but they don't have much to be vulnerable about right at least from an ability standpoint versus the 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 coach whose career didn't take them that far as a player it's much easier for them to be able to see what the struggles are and relate to those now of course there's struggles that go beyond what happens on the field and then what happens physically but it's all the other things that make us and and that also relates to i think why the pillars of the whole athlete initiative are not what you might traditionally expect to be said, okay, this is a coaching program. Let's see what they teach. Yes, exactly. And that, yes. And I'll tell like, so when you were sharing, what came to mind is I sat with coaches recently in high school coaches. So one of them had been coaching, actually coached my cousins. So like decades of coaching. And he was like, he admitted after the workshop that we did together like when we were checking out that he was resistant and wasn't going to come and that then it had been one of the most powerful impactful sessions and that the the, one of the hardest parts i think in all of this is that releasing like when we are willing to rumble and be open to new ways of coaching we have there's almost like this massive guilt that comes of how we showed up before we didn't know And so he was, that was what he was sharing was like, wow, like that takes such courage, right? So yeah, it takes a brave leader is what I say. The people that I work with, I get to work with who are willing to bring me in and how I, when I, we talk about the pillars, there's layers of support of what it looks like and the work that we're doing. And if we zoom way out, it's like, there's three things you can train in sport. There's the physical body. There's the technical components, right? You could say tactical as well. And then there's the mental. And, you know, so often that old school model is like, okay, let's train the mental through the physical, right? Like we're going to just grind and push and get gritty. And there's some truth to that, right? Like when you're in the pain cave, like there's a lot of learning that can happen. 
But we also know now so much around neuroscience and the power of actually explicitly training that mental pillar. So I come in and depending on who I'm working with, what level, right? Whether it's the organization, whether it's a team or the so team of coaches and or a team of athletes or the individuals, like what do we want to work on and strengthen when it comes to this mental pillar? And so I come in as that kind of third pillar of support. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is these kinds of conversations. And yes, they are uncomfortable because it's new. And so similarly, what we're asking, like we're asking our athletes to get uncomfortable all the time and hit that growth edge and the discomfort. And so are we willing to do the same thing? And I think some of the resistance to that is like, well, I've done it this way forever. So like it's working for me. Others, the other resistance is I think deeper than that, which is like, I've now, if I'm going to learn, this is harmful. Mm-hmm. And now I've got to rumble with the fact that I did that. Like I showed up all these decades like that. And we have to just, we have, I know it's hard but release what's what we've done, right? And repair if we need to, but that idea of being able to come to the table takes an enormous amount of courage. Yeah, so could share more on that. And I'm happy to talk details when it comes to like what it looks like. Yeah, just I'll follow your lead here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, and I, I don't know how you would also, I guess, describe the relationship between that and like mental fitness as you yeah. define it and teach it, but- that's clearly an important part of all of this. And I think worth touching on before we wrap up is that part of coaches strengthening their own mental fitness. And then after that, how they help their athletes develop it. But yeah. what about from the coach's perspective? Right? How, did, how would they go? About? Yeah. So that, I mean, there's so many that could drop resources. So like when it comes to becoming aware, so, okay, let me back up even further embracing the fact that we're human so we're humans and we have these beautiful brains and this nervous system and these beautiful brains of ours have taken in a lifetime of living right it's like a video camera the best way i've heard it described from a neuroscientist that i work with it's like we have this video on our whole lives recording with no ability to edit or delete and that then when we're taking in new experiences is all processed through all those old memories right and it shapes how we see ourselves and how we see the world So with that, this idea of we're humans, we have these beautiful brains and nervous systems, and also the the automatic thoughts and stories that are generated for every new experience we encounter. So an athlete comes to us and says something, or an athlete shows up late, or they're not listening or hearing you, right? Or whatever it might be, that experience is then processed through all of our old stuff, right? We all have stuff. And then we fire off these thoughts and and then those thoughts activate emotion and we create stories. So all that happens in such like split seconds. So when we can grow our awareness that's happening instead of this denial that it's happening or trying to just like shove it like the old way it can be described as like this bulldozing of just like plow through, deny that it's there or shove it down. Our body holds on to it. Like there's no, it's energy. We can't just like destroy it, right? It's, we can try to shove it down, but it's going to pop in some capacity. So I would say wh- how coaches can help grow and strengthen their mental fitness is by becoming aware of their inner world as the first step. And then you say, okay, well, what do I do with all this inner world? And we start to develop and strengthen the emotional agility. And so Susan David has an awesome book called actually emotional agility. And she talks about these four steps and that process of first owning I'm human. I have thoughts and emotions and stories. And then we say, okay, well, what are these thoughts and emotions and stories telling me? And just because I think a thought doesn't mean it's true. So you get into the space of actually paying attention, which we have to pause to do and not believing everything that we think, but starting to challenge the thoughts that we have and name the emotions that we're feeling so that we can then, we create the space so that we can then show up with aligned action, right? So in between that, maybe it's reaching for some tools to be able to process or ground. So it like, I don't know if we're too, granular now but I can say one more thing about that and the old way of just like something happens we have this activating event it fires these thoughts and emotions and we're reacting Mm -hmm. so like an example we can bring just everybody's been behind the wheel of a car right like somebody cuts you off or is driving really slow in front of you or something happens right instantly we've got thoughts emotions pulsing through us and stories in a matter of seconds and what we want to do is not be on that autopilot and just like reacting based off urges and impulses. 
So what we want to do is be able to create space. And so the one of the acronyms that I share with coaches is just stop STOP. So it's like literally stopping. The pause is powerful. Mm-hmm. Taking a deep breath. And this gets into the nerve, like the our nervous system, but being able to take a really deep breath, like inhaling twice and then exhaling all the air out activates our parasympathetic stress response, which is going to pump the brakes, right? We'll be allowing our brain to think a little bit more clearly. And then we observe what's happening internally. And then we proceed with the next best step. So we take aligned action. So it's this process, like that is mental fitness. Mental fitness isn't just like plowing through and shutting it down. Mental fitness is this nuanced approach of becoming more mindful and more emotionally agile internally. Yeah. And then we can help, we can model it. And we can, and, right. and I'll tell you like, to see it like you see it work it, it is mm-hmm. it's fun so <laughs> it's really yeah. fun it changes well, relationships it changes performances like when people realize oh i'm just a human and this makes sense what's happening to me mm-hmm. we stop thinking we're broken right we stop thinking we're bad like it's just it, it's yeah it's a powerful unlocking experience yeah <laughs> you mentioned modeling that's probably part of the answer for this but yeah i'm wondering what is one how can coaches then help their athletes develop their mental fitness but also what are the roles in there for example if we're talking about soccer right what is the head soccer coach's role in helping the players on the team develop their mental fitness versus making use of other resources like a mental fitness coach or a sports psychologist or the other resources and so how might all that fit together and then what might that look like Yeah, that's a beautiful question. And I think it depends on resources and role and level and all that. And I think, so the, I'm, this is my bias. My husband's a strength and conditioning coach. Mm -hmm. And so 15 years ago, they were nowhere to be found other than football, right? Like maybe division one football programs had them. And now we understand the relevance and importance of having that professional in that space to train the physical body in that way. That's, that is complementary to what the coach is doing. It allows, it helps the coach do the work of the sport and the sport specific pieces better, right? Like right. that's ultimately the job. And so I would, my dream is like in 15 years from now, we have this resource of this mental pillar and professional supporting. And we, we do, we see it right with sports like resources. But when you're looking even at some power five schools, it's like five total for like an entire athletic department, right? And now we go, okay, all the way, we trickle down to like youth sports that don't have the ability to have that resource. So I think it's a, I think both things need to happen. The coaches growing their awareness in their own lives, because they also still like, even with the teams that I work with, like they, the authority that they have, the power, you could say, even that they have in command because of their position, Mm -hmm. if they're not on board and they're not working on it, like you could do all the work you want with strength and conditioning with the mental fitness piece. And it's not going to be, there's not going to be buying in the same way that if they're on board and doing it themselves. So growing their own mental fitness and being able, when you were asking, like the first thing that pops for me is when a coach can connect with a human being in front of them, just as a human being in front of them first, like that's first pass. Even when there's feedback needing to be given, it's like, how are you as a human? Okay, now here's what we've got to talk about. So that alone creates a space for that growth. And then being able to explicitly train. So in an ideal world, similar to the weight room, you would never drop in and do one set of squats and go like, okay, now I'm ready. Right. Like now I can go do the thing. It's like, you can't drop in and do one mindfulness exercise or the work I do with same here, global, oh. like the star exercise. You can't just like, do tapping one time and then you're ready to go, right? It's just, it requires this deliberateness integrated into our routines where we're building the neural pathways, right? So like the mental muscles, as I say. So, yeah. So I think it's a both, it's a both and. So the role of the coach is connecting with the humans who are striving first foundational piece, right? And then if they have the resources to, so and that I, for the way, one of the pillars of support, what I've been doing in the process currently of onboarding a volleyball club. So they don't have the ability, they're high school kids to be able to have a full-time person. And so in our day and age, now we can, right? They're not even in the state that I live in, but what we do is we get, we have meetings and then they have access to the online academy and I support the coaches to bring it to life, mm-hmm. right? So then they're taking 15 minutes out of practice. That's the part that's, there's resistance there too but they've right. got to commit that time out of practice 
to drop in that piece with support, right? So then there's integration there. So there's lots of ways to be creative with it. It just, it takes saying it's important, getting clear on why it's important and then creating the time for it. Yeah. So Samantha, it's been amazing to have you here on the show. And I'm sure we have listeners out there who might be interested in at least learning more about your work, if not going one step further, where can they learn more? What what will they learn if they check out your website? And, you know, uh, how will that go? My website's getting, so it's still running and up. So SamanthaLivingstone.com, probably the best way. And then there's a place to connect directly. And I do read all emails that come through. It just might take me a little bit to get back. And then I'm on social channels as well. But the yeah, my, my website is is being, there'll be a new one coming soon with revisions, but it is accurate, up to date. And yeah, I post, there's lots of blogs, past blogs to read that they're on there. Like there's lots, and then there's a there's actually an opt-in, control the controllables. So like if you say yes to joining the mailing list, then you get this, it's actually one of my favorite things that I get gift, which is the control the controllables doc that they can, anybody, a parent could use. You could use it in your classroom. You could use it as a coach with the team. So yeah, encourage to print that out and share that. So yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Coaches, check out those resources. We'll put all the links below to Samantha's website, to the social media, to everywhere where you can kind of find those resources. So check that out. Please do also subscribe to Sideline Sessions to hear the rest of this current season and our future season. We continue to have a lot of wonderful guests to share with you. Visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Samantha, thanks again for being here. Yeah, thank you. Edited by Gage Sanderson. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E.